If you were living in Jerusalem 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be forgiven for thinking that the promised land wasn't looking very promising. The glorious time when Joshua had conquered the promised land of Canaan was just a distant memory. So too were the halcyon days when King David had been on the throne, days when the kingdom of Israel had grown in its ascendancy. Then there was Solomon. His fame had spread far and wide. But now, that was long forgotten. Things had gone downhill in Israel. The kingdom had split in two, with ten northern tribes forming a separate kingdom. Benjamin and Judah alone had retained their centre of worship in Jerusalem. And by the time Isaiah came to make this prophecy, the northern kingdom had been overrun by the Assyrian army. The ten northern tribes had been carried away into captivity, never to return. The land had been resettled by Gentiles and the ten tribes were just a memory, as it were, imprinted on the landscape. Indeed, this is why this area is described here in verse 1 as being Galilee of the nations. It had become a place where those from other nations who were not Jews had come in and supplanted those who were. And the two southern kingdoms Well, they hadn't fared much better either, had they? Faced with the growing threats on their borders, their king, King Ahaz, resorted to make a treaty with the Assyrians. And now Judah was just a vassal state, serving not God, but a foreign empire to their north. And all these were just outward signs of a deeper spiritual decline that had taken place. You may remember that God had promised Abraham the land of Israel centuries beforehand. And then God had miraculously given that land to the Israelites, proving that you can rely on the promises of God. But all this was in the past No longer were the people trusting in the promises that God had made to them. Neither were they trusting in the God who had made those promises. Ever since the kingdom of David, there had been a spiritual decline in a downward spiral. And finally, as the northern kingdoms faced the threat of the Assyrian army, they didn't heed the advice of God's prophets. They turned to human alliances rather than trusting in the God who had promised the land to them. And so they made their choice. And in doing so, they took a path away from God, a path which led to their dispersion and their destruction. So then, if you had been living in Jerusalem 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus you might have recognised Isaiah's assessment of the situation which we have recorded here. For Isaiah tells us that there are people walking in darkness 
and dwelling in a land of deep darkness. Well, you say, that's a pretty depressing start to a Christmas sermon, isn't it? But we need to start here to understand where things are going and what comes later. Many years ago, when I was young and irresponsible, a friend and I set out to climb all the 15 peaks in North Wales over 3,000 foot in one day. The plan was to camp out under the stars on the top of Snowdon and start out at dawn. And we hoped we would complete the route before sunset. Well, we we set off to climb Snowdon at 10 o'clock at night. And at first we could see the path clearly. But then in the darkness, everything began to look different. And even with torches, the inevitable happened. We lost the path. And for the next three or four hours, we were stumbling around with no idea where we were. We were getting colder and colder and more and more miserable. The terrain became steeper and more exposed. Our spirits fell. We became more and more despondent. And then we finally concluded, not only did we not know where the path was, we had no idea even what mountain we were on. Isn't this a picture of what Isaiah is describing here? For a life without God is a life in darkness. And a life without God in the darkness leaves us stumbling along, not really knowing where we are or where we're going. A life without God in the darkness leaves us cold and alone with just a few fellow companions equally stumbling along with no real idea of where they're going either. But the prophet goes on further because he describes them as living, in verse 2, in a land of deep darkness. And some other translations have a slightly different rendition of that. They describe it as living in a land of the shadow of death. And that's really helpful because that phrase, the shadow of death, in Hebrew is the same phrase as we've just sung in Psalm 23, verse 4. We sang it earlier, didn't we, where David declares that even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he does not fear because the Lord is with him. For those living in Jerusalem at the time, however, they could not say that. The experience of David wasn't true for them. They faced the shadow of death, and the Lord wasn't there with him, with them. They faced bewilderment, and they faced fear and danger, and his rod and his staff were not there to comfort them. They faced the uncertainty of life in an occupied land without any assurance of what the future would hold. They were stumbling along in the darkness without any assurance that God would be keeping them through the days and the weeks ahead. 
But Isaiah was called to prophesy. And as he starts his prophecy in verse 1, he gives us one of the great transition verses of the Bible. Remember, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't he? Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul describes the effects of sin in our lives and the hopelessness of our situation. And then Paul exclaims, but God. And then Paul goes on to explain God's great plan of salvation, that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. So too, here at the beginning of chapter 9, Isaiah has a similar transition verse. Having described the depths into which Israel has fallen in, uh, in chapter 8, Isaiah is able to look forward and say, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see, even though things were desperate, with the people turning away from God and the land occupied by the Assyrians, Isaiah was able to say that there is a time coming when it will be different. Now, as we look at this passage together this morning, there are two initial observations that we need to make. The first thing we see is that although Isaiah is looking forwards, he writes this prophecy in the past tense. Look in verse 2. The people who walked, past tense in darkness, have, past tense, seen a great light. This is, if you like, a, a prophetic past tense. Although the events were to happen in the future, the prophet Isaiah was certain that they would come to pass. And he had good reason to, didn't he? Because it wasn't down to him. If you turn right to the end of that passage that we read in verse 7, we see the reason for Isaiah's certainty. For there we read, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. It was God, you see, the creator and ruler of the universe who was going to bring these events to pass. And as God conveyed this message to Isaiah, Isaiah had good reason for his confidence that these things would happen. And so he could speak in this prophetic past tense, speaking as if the events had already happened because it was so certain that they would. But the second thing we need to notice is that Isaiah doesn't just tell us that a great transition will happen. He tells us how it will happen. For in verses 4 and 5 and 6, on three occasions, he gives us a reason. Three times his declaration starts with the word for. In verse 4, he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressor and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. In other words, there's going to be a great victory. And then in verse 5, we have this picture of the aftermath of a battle with all the detritus of war being burnt up 
as peace comes to the land. Those declarations must have been music to the Isaiah's friends as they heard his prophecy. Wouldn't they have been looking to some great liberator, someone who'd come to cast off the oppression of the Assyrian Empire? And then Isaiah gives his third reason, for he says in verse 6, a baby will be born. Now, we don't know what Isaiah's audience thought about that, but we have a great advantage, don't we? We don't need to rely on Isaiah's prophetic future tense to be assured that this would come, that God would bring this to pass, because we have history to rely upon. For we know what happened 700 years later in Bethlehem. What was it that Isaiah had anticipated all those years ago? Well, verse 6 tells us, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. These words don't anticipate any baby being born, however. If that's all that's meant, any one of us could have fulfilled the prophecy. Rather, we're told here that he's a special baby, one who has been described as Emmanuel in the preceding chapters. The L at the end of Emmanuel is the Hebrew word for God. His name means God with us. Yes, a child is to be born, says Isaiah, but he's going to be different. He's different because he's also the son given by God. And although his understanding was far more limited than ours, under God's inspiration, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to the coming of the God-man. Isaiah was speaking of no other than the Lord Jesus himself. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Because the child has a name. And not just one. So special is this child, so unique is this one who was given. That he needs four double-barreled names even to begin to describe him. Four names are needed in verse 6 to properly introduce us to the child. Four names to begin to describe his character, to convey to us who he truly is. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Well, we're told, first of all, aren't we, that he is wonderful counsellor. Isaiah had described Israel as living in darkness. They were stumbling through life under the oppression of the Assyrians. Take God out of the equation. And well might they have asked, what is the purpose in all this? They were facing the fears of life under occupation, so much that they're described as being 
in the shadow of death. God wasn't with them. His rod and staff were not there protecting them. They were alone in the darkness, alone with all their fears. But Isaiah tells them there is one who will, is coming who will bring light into that darkness. One who is able to counsel and guide. One who gives purpose and understanding. The adjective wonderful is a powerful word. It speaks in the Hebrew of supernatural power. And friends, isn't this as relevant to us today as it was to Isaiah's audience in Jerusalem all those years ago? About Christ, where do you turn for advice or counsel? If you search in Google, do you find the meaning of life? If you phone a friend, are you comparing notes with someone who's equally in the dark? You see, if we remove God from our lives, then Isaiah tells us that we're, we're walking in darkness. We're stumbling along. We don't know where we're going. We're just stumbling through life. And if we don't know where we're going, what's the point of it all? What's the point when life gets tough and I can't see a way out of it? What's the point when someone I love has a terminal illness? What's the point of life itself with all those disappointments and trials? Remove God and we struggle to find answers to these questions. Because like the people around Isaiah will be living in the shadow of death without God. But it doesn't have to be this way, says Isaiah. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he is a wonderful counsellor. He's a supernatural advisor. He's altogether a divine source of purpose. And he shows us that our purpose in life or our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What greater purpose can there be than that? What more wonderful counsellor can there be? The one who shows us that this is the life we can and we should be living. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you see, the wonderful supernatural counsellor is the light of life. When we're in darkness, he shows us where we are and where we should be going. We're told that the child's name will be Wonderful Counsellor. But then we're told that his name is Mighty God. And perhaps you think that's stating the obvious. If Jesus was God, then surely he must have been mighty. Well, that's true. But if we look back at verse 4, 
we're giving a further insight into his name. For an Israelite, the words in verse 4 would have been incredibly invocative of their time in Egypt. You recall how Israel was held captive in Egypt and the yoke of the burden there in this verse reminds us of the tasks which the Israelites were forced to perform. But by miraculous intervention, the Lord released them from that bondage. God broke the rod that was used to keep them in line. God broke the yoke of the burden which had been placed upon them. And then led by Moses out of Egypt, God opened the way through the Red Sea, only then to drown Pharaoh's pursuing horsemen. But do you remember what happened after that? In that account? In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, we read it at the beginning of the service, we read that after they had crossed the Red Sea and their pursuers had been vanquished, the people sang praise to God. They sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And then we have a duet because the people were singing this and then Miriam, the sister of Aaron, responds in verse 21. She sings, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty God Because he is the one who, in the words of Miriam, has triumphed gloriously. He's accomplished a great victory. But his victory wasn't over the Egyptians. It was over the curse of sin. The name Mighty God points us to the cross and to Christ's great work of redemption. It points us to the cross where God's justice and God's mercy met together. It points us to the cross where God's wrath was poured out upon one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that we should not have to suffer this fate ourselves. Christ was cursed on the cross so that we might escape that same penalty for our sin. That is where the Lord Jesus Christ triumphed gloriously. But there's more. For here in, uh, in verse 4 we read that the yoke and the staff and the rod have been broken as in the day of Midian. And that points us to the story of Gideon that we read about in Judges chapter 7. You you may remember the story. The Midianites were oppressing Israel and that Gideon rallied an army of 32,000 men. But God said, no, these are too many. Send those away who are afraid. And 22,000 men left. And Gideon was left with 10,000 men. And then God said, these are too many. So Gideon took them to the river 
and asked them to drink and then he divided them depending on how they took the water. And eventually there were only 300 men left, 300 against a host of an army of the Midianites. And then just with a shout and a few broken clay pots, a great victory was achieved. Friends, this reminds us that God uses what is weak and foolish to achieve his victory. Apparently the word mighty here has a sense of a heroic soldier attached to it. A heroic few achieving much. Gideon and his little band of 300 men were weak and foolish and yet achieved much. The Lord Jesus Christ must have appeared weak and foolish as he hung on the cross, alone and despised. Yet he accomplished much, didn't he? As he broke the yoke of our burden and the rod of our oppressor. Someone made the observation that as Jesus hangs on the cross to bring light into our darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ has to go through the valley of the shadow of death. But for the Lord Jesus on the cross, Psalm 23 verse 4 isn't true for him, is it? In order to accomplish his victory, the Lord's rod and staff are not there to comfort him. In the shadow of death, as the Lord Jesus Christ went through the valley of the shadow of death, the Father was not by his side. All he could cry is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For to us is born a child, says Isaiah. To us is given a son. And who is he? He is mighty God, the one who alone, on his own, has won a great victory at such cost to himself. But as I goes on, he tells us that he is everlasting father, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Perhaps that seems a little strange to you. If you have a New Testament understanding of who God is, we speak of a theology of the Trinity. We speak of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can the Son be everlasting father but Isaiah isn't telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ and the father are one in the sense of being the same person we're told that his name describes his character that he has a father-like love the son of God some years ago I was given a card a birthday card which had on it a sketch by way of a graph of the relationship between father and son over a period of time. It went up and then it went down and then it came up again. The card illustrated a truth. To the young child, the father could do no wrong. But during the teenage years, 
the father was a complete idiot. Encouragingly, the, the car did anticipate that the relationship would recover following on from that. But you see, no matter how obnoxious the teenager, the father must wait patiently until that time when the relationship is restored. Friends, doesn't that tell us something about the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus who has a character of an everlasting father. No matter how far we go from him, his father-like love is there for us. How he patiently endures our, our obstinacy and our rebellion. Like the father anticipating the prodigal son in that story, the Lord Jesus eagerly awaits the time when we come to our senses and eventually return home. Not only that, but as we approach him, he runs and embraces us. He welcomes us back with a father-like love into the family home, the home of our Heavenly Father. With a father-like love, he lavishes the finest upon us, if only we turn back to him. And that's not all, for Isaiah tells us that this father-like love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the love of an everlasting father. For before the foundation of the world, in his everlasting father-like love, the Son covenanted with his heavenly Father, to secure us, a people for himself. When the child was born, with his everlasting father-like love, the Lord Jesus Christ took on himself human flesh, coming to die. Such is the everlasting father-like love of the Lord Jesus that he tells us that he will not allow any of those given to him by the Father to be lost. For to us is born a child, to us is given a son. He's called Everlasting Father because he is the one who loves us with an everlasting love to secure us and keep us and hold us forever. And then lastly we're told that he's Prince of Peace. Isaiah tells us that the child who will be born, the son who will be given, is the Prince of Peace. Look back at verse 5. And we see a remarkable picture of that peace. For here is peace where there was once a battle. The remains of the battle are cleared away. They're burnt up. Boots and blood-soaked garments are burned. So there's no longer any trace of them. Friends, doesn't that point us to the effect that Christ's victory has on those who put their trust in him? If you are without God, then a battle will rage around you. Life is messy and full of hand-to-hand -hand combat. But if you come to Christ, peace will descend onto the battlefield. The scars and pains of past battles will be removed 
So there's no longer any trace of them. Peace, you see, is found in Christ because he is the Prince of Peace. Peace in Christ means peace with God, an end of the fighting against him or running from him. The Lord Jesus Christ said, My peace I give to you, not peace as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For to us is born a child, to us is given a son. He is Prince of Peace, the one in whom we find our rest, even for all eternity in the presence of our Lord and Saviour. So this then is why Isaiah was able to say with certainty that gloom and despair and darkness would come to an end. He saw the coming of the Lord Jesus. He saw a wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It was a delight to meet little Isabel last weekend, last Sunday. I wonder what a one-year-old like Isabel is making of Christmas. It's frustrating though, isn't it? If you give a present to a little one-year-old child like Isabel... So often, they ignore the present and just want to play with the brightly coloured paper. And that's the danger, isn't it? We become so absorbed with all the brightly coloured trappings of life that we ignore the gift Isaiah says, to you is born a child, to you a son is given. His wonderful counsellor, who will give you a purpose and a place in life as he displaces the darkness. His mighty God, who will deal with your sin once and for all through his finished work on the cross. His everlasting Father who will love you with an everlasting love. And he's the Prince of Peace who will give you peace not only with God but also with others and with yourself. To you is born a child. To you a son is given. Friends, let's not ignore the gift. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who gives us what we do not deserve. We are wretched, helpless sinners. And yet in your everlasting love, you reach out into our lives, giving us the one who is the light to our darkness, 
giving us the one who deals with our sin when we cannot deal with it ourselves. One who gives us peace. We bless you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your kindness to us in sending us your Son. And we pray, O Lord, that for all of us we would embrace him and find the forgiveness of our sin and an eternal peace with you. So, Father, continue with us now, we pray. Bless us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.